Uh, hey, uh, content warning for this video. Um, our dog is recovering from an injury, so you're going to hear some noises in the background. You might hear him whine occasionally. He is fine. Yeah, don't worry. It was just a teeny little injury, but he has to have a cone, so he feels very sorry for himself. He is the biggest of crybabies, uh, but understand that we are doing everything we can to keep him happy and healthy and comfortable. Yeah. As he goes bonk on the floor. <laughs> so yeah, sorry for audio quality. Uh, forgive the beautiful dog child. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball. Disney Animated Movies, without mercy, without relent, without compromise. <laughs> I am Talon Lee, he, him. I'm Fox Lee, she, her. I've seen these all before, he has not. <laughs> and today we are talking about 1986's The Great Mouse Detective, or The Adventures of The Great Mouse Detective, or Basil of Baker Street, or Basil, The Great Adventures of the Mouse Detective. My, my, my. <laughs> this is all going to be straightforward, isn't it? I thought I remembered seeing a few different titles for this. Buckle up. <laughs> oh, this is always how it turns out. I'm like, well, I know this. I've seen this. I read the storybook a lot of times. I had a crush on the gay main character. And Talon is like, yeah, but I read the page. <laughs> Well, this is the problem that comes up when I want when I've got basically see, we have this segment, the double take, which is about how has your opinion of this movie changed upon the second rewatch? And for the most part, this has been Fox talks a bit about things because I haven't seen shit. <laughs> this you know, this isn't actually a bad thing, because that means we're perfectly fulfilling our roles as you, the media studies dweeb, and <laughs> me, the Disney fan with no formal education. But boy do I like animation. Uh-huh. However, before we can talk about this movie, we have to talk about the plot. We do. I believe it's your turn to tell us about the plot. It is my turn to do the plot in 60 seconds. All right, that means I'm on timer duty. So your time starts now. Basil of Baker Street is a scrawny detective nerd mouse who is approached one day by a little girl named Olivia, who with the accompaniment of a Dr. David Dawson, all mice again, to investigate the disappearance of her father, a toy maker. This is, as it turns out, related to Basil's longtime nemesis, Radigan, who is conspiring to use the toy maker to make a replica of Queen Victoria on her 60th Jubilee, which he will then use to take command of all of England. He manages to trap, Radigan manages to trap Basil, Basil, uh, and, and enact his plan. Basil and Dawson and Olivia escape the trap stop Radigan, have a climactic battle on Big Ben, and in the end, it's, it signals the establishment of the new normal for Basil and Dawson as mystery solvers. Alright, I'll let you have it. You have four seconds left to spare. Uh, a deep <laughs> breath at the start. It's, it's the same thing. I did the same thing. Uh, you gave away the mystery up front. 
I know. And, and it's really embarrassing too, because, you know, I've had all the ones where there's no plot, so it's a fucking <laughs> fart in the wind. Oh, that's what it is. You've never developed the muscles for this. No, no. <laughs> Ultimately, I am a sprinter and you are the marathon runner. So you say this, but I totally lost my shit last time it was me. That was a mess. <laughs> Look, someone has gone 30 seconds over and it doesn't really matter who it was exactly. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, Fox, what's your relationship to this movie? Uh, this is another one that I had not actually seen the movie as a child, but my friend owned the storybook, and by Christ, I was into Sherlock Holmes. Or rather, I was into Sherlock Hound. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes was negotiable. Sherlock Holmes is okay if he's a furry. I love me some good Miyazaki gentlemen. Yes. I do have a previous relationship to lots of the things in this movie. (laughs) I do not have a previous relationship to this movie, and I don't, and I specifically don't have a relationship to the media this is based on, because it's not based on Sherlock Holmes. It's based on Basil of Baker Street, a series of books about a mouse that copies Sherlock Holmes. It, it, yeah, I mean, not not based on Sherlock Holmes in the sense that there's one single intermediate point between them. Yeah. But the point is that I could say, well, I've read a ton of Sherlock Holmes, and I have. I'm exactly that kind of tiresome nerd. But I think that it would do a disservice to the type of story this really is, and the creativity it displays in in executing (laughs) on it, to just go, well, it's Sherlock Holmes, but mice. I wonder if Disney picked it up in the first place because they already had done Rescuers and, uh, uh, what was our other little mouse film? Why is my mind blanking on that? Well, anyway, they'd already done Rescuers and they were like, this is pretty much the same thing, just a much more exciting story. That's a secret plot point we'll get to later. Oh, oh no. This was going to be Chippendale as well. I'm calling it now. Never mind. Ah! (laughs) I know how their minds work. I'm in their heads. (laughs) Now, double take. You've seen this movie as an adult, and you've now seen it as a older adult. Is there anything that you think of differently now? Um, there's not a whole lot of double take that does not come up in other of our pre-organized sections, so I'm leaving it for there. What, what's that I hear? Is that the long I, creak? No, crunch! <laughs> I slammed the door. Not yet. Uh, the only thing I have that's really worthy of note is that for some reason I thought there were Welsh accents in this. I, I thought our two very... She's wearing a fucking tam yeah. <laughs> And I thought this child was Welsh. That's on me. <laughs> That's black cauldron residual background res- radiation. It is. Well, that was going to be my point. Like, how yeah, this movie knows how to do a Welsh accent. No, it doesn't. Fuck, shut up. <laughs> shut up. You're going to make yourself look like an idiot. Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes. <laughs> I mean, I will say this, her accent wasn't fantastic, ah. but I don't know if that's a, like an accent was being done or just, this is a child actor and you can't expect too much of them. It, it is true. Like, we talk a lot about child actors and like, the thing is, a lot of the time, this is, this is now when it comes to child voice actors, we're dealing with voice actors who have been effectively like raised by parents and are being overseen by various guidelines that mean that they can't be that good at it. Uh, because the previous system gave us things like Bobby Driscoll. Well, I'm not going to say can't be that good at it. Um, I think the standard of child voice acting we get in, in kids' cartoons today is fucking great. Yeah, let me let me rephrase that. Can't be reliably manufactured to <laughs> oh, be that good I'll at it. I'll give you that. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it... I'm not, I'm not trying to shit on the kids' acting ability. It's just no. Disney basically did at one point have the ability of we will make 
the child actors as good as we can possibly make them to have the affect that we want them to have, and that level of control led to genuine tragedy. So I kind of don't mind having this rough spot in the 80s before we have a generation of kids who genuinely want to become voice actors. Turns out you shouldn't deform a child in the name of uh, of capitalist works, yes. Who yeah. knew? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, well. You slammed it shut. I'm just filling air now, aren't I? Mm. Uh... I, no, no, I don't, no, ah, oh, jeez, I can't hold it closed. <laughs> ah, it's going open. <laughs> it's the Yikes Door, a section for where we talk about things that are definitely the products of their time. Sometimes they're harmlessly the product of their time. Like, seeing all the credits for a movie before the movie starts. Sometimes they make us want to cringe ourselves inside out and forget we ever saw them. <laughs> so I actually have a couple of things here, some of which are actually quite harmless. Uh, but shall I open us up? Go for it. The very first time we see Basil, he's wearing a disguise. Yep! <laughs> the disguise can only be accurately described as villainous Chinaman. Yeah, doesn't have the rice hat, but everything else. It is, it is deeply uncomfortable. It's a stereotype straight out of a Sherlock Holmes story, that's for sure. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Oh. Be nice to not have that in there. And it's not even in aid of anything. It no. has no plot relevance. They just needed a, a disguise for him to jump in in that shows he's eccentric. Mm-hmm. Could have been anything. And it was this. <laughs> I also... I'm I'm kind of touched by this point because at this point, like, everyone fucking does it because it's a great way to show that Sherlock is just an absolute dipshit. But firing his gun, <laughs> usually around <laughs> someone who doesn't know him or or a child in this case. Like, that's not a big yikes, but also, like... Hey, everyone making live-action Sherlock's right now? Disney did it in 1985? Find a second idea. You're not edgy. The cartoon mouse version did this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, look, I've got a lot of notes on the, the goodness of this Holmes, even though he's not a Holmes, but, I mean, he really is. Yeah. So, we're definitely going to talk about that later. Uh, so one micro-sized, entirely neutral um, product of its time, the uh, the proper... The, the, the Disney opening that I think of as the Disney opening is here. <laughs> we mentioned it last time, but because yes. the Black Cauldron didn't get a release until on home video until 1998 and never got a DVD release <laughs> and didn't, get to, Blu- didn't yeah. get to Blu-ray until Disney Plus came along, means that I don't know if it ever screened in cinemas with that opening. <laughs> well, I'm confident that it did because this one definitely did. Absolutely. And that is, well, how did you describe it? The theremin-ass version? Yeah. The <laughs> it's just not the same without that bit. They don't yeah. do it anymore, but no, that is the sign of, of 90s Disney. Yeah, I that's... guess slightly 80s Disney. Yeah, it's, 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 it's this era. And this is one of the really cool things about breaking the show up into seasons like this. Because no matter how you do it, no matter how cleanly you want to try and do it, there are always going to be points of blurring together and crossover and whatnot. And this here, this tail end of the xerography era where things are collapsing and various old talent just explode. Like, we are, we watched a bomb go off in the last two films. And... <laughs> sure did. Finger in that page. But that means that now we're getting to see bits of things that we think of as, like, eternally Disney are finally showing up. <laughs> well, like Musker and Clemens. Exactly! We're going to keep, keep those names in your mind if you don't already know who they are, viewer, because they are going to come up again. Boy, howdy. Boy. Oh, hey, Addy. You got another Yikes store? 
Uh, yeah, it's it's not a huge yikes, but, uh, you know, even in the 80s, you clearly could not do homes without the pie. Yep. That's, uh, they, that probably means that you couldn't make this film nowadays, because you're just not gonna show the smoking character to kids. Yeah, he, he also, like, it's, it's really funny, because Holmes was off his face on a dozen different things, but the thing that got <laughs> standardized is Holmes smoking a pipe. Well, that's the, the one that comes with a prop. Yeah, right? it's yeah. Part of the Sherlock Holmes costume, and we see him strike up a cigarette as well. Like it's not like he's holding a prop pipe; he is smoking. He is a smoker. Yep. Now that's nineteen eighty-five. They hadn't quite banned that advertising cigarettes to kids yet, which is wild. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, really the yikes is for uh, the advertising standards of the wider world. Mm-hmm. We were just okay with this until now. So here's a medium yikes. Uh, so I mentioned earlier on that there's something messed up with uh, Dawson's military history compared to Watson's. And Fox is like, well, they just copied the same war. They did, but there's a 17-year gap. Well, it so happens that the reason I was confident that uh, that uh, Watson had a history in the Afghanistan war is because not this morning did I see a tweet going around Twitter remarking how telling it was that both in the original Holmes books and in the most recent Holmes remake, he's still an Afghan veteran. Yeah. They didn't have to change that, because white people have never stopped killing people in Afghanistan. The, it has... I. It sucks that it has such an amazing nickname, but I've heard it called the Anvil of Empires. Jesus Christ. So that's a... But you know what? We're not going to go down that street. That's too depressing. This is a movie about a melodramatic cartoon mouse and his gay villain boyfriend. And it's pretty good, so I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm shitting yeah. on this. But okay, so the original Watson is a veteran of the Afghan War in 1880. That's the Second Anglo-Afghan War, which, by the way, is the second of three Anglo-Afghan wars. The third one being in 1919, which you may recognize if you've been paying attention to the dates we've trotted around. Yeah. During World War One. I. I know an idea, yeah. Good lord, leave that place alone. But I I have a terrible head for history, but I remember songs. Ah uh, So I remember the dates people like Red Gum tell me. Yes. Uh but here's the thing. Watson was in eighteen eighty. This is eighteen ninety seven. This guy said he was in service in Afghanistan in eighteen ninety seven, which is to say he was part of the occupying force that mostly spent its time shooting shepherds on horseback. Ooh, that's unpleasant. Bonus, they dropped the name of his regiment. I was gonna ask if you had a specific reference for that. It didn't exist at that point. Oh, it had thank been goodness. folded in into the Northumberlands, which is to say, I think Dawson's faking valor. Oh. <laughs> See, my take was gonna be so we can't directly connect him to any actual atrocities. Well, there's that too. But it doesn't change the fact that He's apparently a member of a unit that doesn't exist at that point. But of course, obviously, the mouse units might have continued on. And who knows? The mouse Anglo-Afghan war might have lasted even longer. I don't know. This is one of the problems when you bring up the actual wars in your things. Oh, maybe the mouse Anglo-Afghan war was a very short affair. It was uh, a brief misunderstanding done with quickly. And then England left. Hmm. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't realize this was your cheese. That's why he's formerly of the military. Yeah. it's th- That war is over now. There mm. you go. I've made this world better. But we know he does surgery. Well, yes. You don't forget that when you get discharged. And that concludes the medium yikes. 
Yeah, what's your big yikes then? Basil and Radigan are so queer coded. <laughs> oh, that's not that big a yikes. No, but it's just like the biggest, most glaring, most obvious thing of like, <laughs> oh, okay, they're both gay, right? <laughs> and they're and they're gay for each other, and they can't say that. So all of this. All of the elaborate plots and the schemes and the criminal empire and the forensics and the guns and the Rube Goldberg machines. This is just because you two can't fuck. Look, I... The coding is absolutely there. (laughs) That's clearly not it, because they're genuinely enemies. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. But it, it is a very entertaining lens. It is a byproduct of how the coding works. In that we typically only ever see queer characters in media in pairs that snap together like magnets. Which means that when you have a gay-coded protag and a gay-coded villain, the brain just goes, Oh, so those are the gays. They snap together. That, you're not wrong. But also, I don't think they meant to make Basil queer-coded. No. Radigan, I think it's pretty obvious he is a, a general, you know, foppish villain type who is at once... A big chunky brute, but also a prancy tippy toed fancy boy. Yep. He's he's got it all. He fucking records a song. He's amazing. <laughs> he's he's a phenomenal villain. And we'll but get more into that. <laughs> Basil, I think they just didn't realize what they were making. Like at the very least, your boy is ace, right? Yeah. And, and like time has moved on. In nineteen eighty five, what looked like a reedy intellectual now comes across as well, he lives at home on his own. And he avoids, and he finds romance confusing and bizarre. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Confirmed bachelor. Some form of queer. He just yeah. doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I believe one of them was on purpose. One of them wasn't, but taken out of context, they are fucking hilarious. We have an interesting case for the one that was on purpose, as it were, and it'll come up more in the animation and voice <laughs> stuff. How much of it is just this is Vincent Price's fault. I. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure Radigan is the way Radigan is, explicitly because of Vincent Price. Ah, yes. Noted, uh, uh, tis normie Vincent Price. <laughs> oh, lordy. Boop, 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 boop. This is Eyelash Watch. <sighs> Talon, I think it might be a time we retire Eyelash Watch. What, just because we've done it now for 23 episodes and had something interesting to say in four of them? <laughs> Hey, it was interesting to see when the art style shift happened, that's all. I worked hard on that jingle. We got our mileage. There was a jingle? I mean, sure, yes, sweetie. But uh, like all art, it has its time and place. And we've now moved past it. Oh, now it's really sad. Now, look, Eyelash Watch will come back if we ever have anything meaningful to say about it. But I think having a regular segment where we go, nothing interesting, every episode, is, uh, you know, past its use. Fair enough. It was mostly interesting when we talked about Pinocchio anyway. Well, let's talk about the art style in general, though. Yes! So, animation and making. Uh, I believe we call this Between the Lines. We did, though now the sketchy era is almost over, I'm looking like a slight fool for picking that. No. Whatever. It's still all about drawing shit. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, we, well, we are definitely out of the sketchy era here. So I'd like to propose our new segment, Sorry for Partly Xeroxing. I'm getting some pushback. We'll workshop the name and get back to you. 
So, tell me, Fox, oh traditional animation nerd, what have you to say about the animation in this? I mean, nothing too remarkable. This feels like the beginning of, of Disney animation being boringly excellent, I gotta say. Uh, let me see, a couple of rough around the edges things. Toby's lines are a lot thicker than Dawson mm. in a couple of scenes where they appear together. Yep. So, uh, I don't know, I feel like you probably wouldn't have had that problem if you'd uh, been a bit more careful about it. Uh-huh. Uh, so you wouldn't say that this movie looks really cheap and rough? Oh, hell no. This looks great. Even the CG holds up astonishingly well, considering that this is not even the 90s yet. Like, it's pretty fucking good, to be honest. So, uh, this may play into the capitalism section a little, but, uh, Michael Eisner cut the budget in half for this movie. Uh- and then cut a year off production time as wow, well. Wow! And it still came out this good! This movie was made with half of its initial budget and with one year less. Because, I mean, this movie whips. Yeah! This, this is a good film. Absolutely unironically, this movie fucking owns. And I believe, spoilers for later, I guess, but I think the capitalism section will bear us out when this film damn near saves the studio. Yep. Uh, as far as, as specific notes on animation... Uh, there's a sequence where Fidget and Basil are climbing up a pile of blocks that is clearly drawn as background cell, and uh, they animate the background cells. <laughs> like how you said background, like background, background cell is yeah, not a yeah, thing. Sorry, a background layer. Yeah, yeah. Like it, they, they. I mean, I guess that's one of our CG as well. We also did um, a number of panning and rotating shots. Yep. Which I suspect CG was involved with, even if I couldn't detect it every time. Because that's just some really advanced shit to do by hand. So, the nature of CGI in this movie, we have this been fairly well documented. And specifically what was happening is that they would render a scene in a computer to generate wireframes. And then traditional animation would draw over those wireframes. Which, in the scenes where it's subtle, like the parallax tilting in the toy room scene... Makes it look, wow, these traditional animators are fucking wizards. And in other places makes you go, wow, this must be CGI in the clock. Where all of the clock sequence, the reason Radigan is able to touch the clock when he runs up and down the gears is because everything there has been hand animated. It's just the wireframes for all the clockwork, which are all correct. Are, that totally uh, makes sense. Yeah. And as you say, it does still look hand drawn, even though it's clearly... The shapes are clearly CG, and the main way you can tell that is because there's no distortion of the shapes. Yeah. They're actually as they would appear. This is why CG looks shitty and lifeless when you put it on on meat characters. Mm -hmm. But works great for, like, fucking clockworks and things. And traditionally, one of the things that you don't actually see a lot of in Disney work ever was a straight line. You'd see yeah, things yeah, that absolutely. were pretty straight, even like eight edges of tables and whatnot. But even then, it was very common for there to be a bit of a bow or a bit of a dip or just something to make these things have that real roughness to them. Whereas the clock is lots of straight lines. And the the hand-on element still comes into it because it, the lines themselves have character. Mm. Like, that's that's the point of drawing over it, because... If a thing is clean in comparison to this hand-drawn stuff around it, that sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, you can still see the the clockwork. Like, you can tell. It's not like it's a mystery, but Mm -hmm. it's not jarring the way that it would be if they'd slapped straight-up CG in. I have a note here, which is, we both went ooh at the same animation moment. (laughs) I can't remember what it was. 
Was it not in the clock tower? I think it might have been in the clock tower. I feel like it was in the clock tower. But I can't remember. <laughs> um, but I, I bring up CG specifically in the case of the toy room blocks because uh, that, that doesn't mesh with the idea that they were drawn over. Because the point of, like, for those who don't know, the reason that you can tell the difference between the background and the cell is because the background is painted in a much more detailed style and the cell is mostly flat colours, so you can see if something's going to move. Uh, perfect example in this movie, the glass circle that Fidget pops out to get into the toy store in the scene where they need it to move looks completely different yeah. to what we saw half a second ago and to all the other glass circles along that window. But only in the scene where they need it to move. Uh, but if the blocks didn't have that quality about them, the, the reason these days would be because you can just render that painted surface onto them. Mm. But that's not what was going on here if they were drawing over the wireframes. I don't have details on whether or not the block CGI. I know one could hypothetically do that with just traditional animation. Well, yeah, but only if you painted every frame yeah, in, which, in that detailed a fashion, which you don't fucking do. Especially if your budget's been cut in half. Yeah, you don't have time for that crap. Nobody got time for that crap. Essentially, it looks to me like either there was some really weird reason that sequence looks that way, or there is a computer technique that just hasn't been documented in a, in a place where I was easily able to find it. Uh, but it does stand out because it does look like background art is used in animation, which just doesn't happen. Did they simplify that whole background? Were they Possibly. just about it and they tricked us? Maybe. it was all in shadow. Another option is that they might have been able to use CGI to render that whole sequence of the blocks falling and just rendered a lighting on it and then drawn over that. But even then, you're still like, why would why would you do it with paint? Why wouldn't you? Like, it was good enough in all the other sequences for the blocks to be drawn on the cell. Oh, well. Yeah, that's a weird one. I kind of want to rewatch that scene and form a solid opinion about it. But Yeah. I, it could also be that I was literally just duped. Um, my, my main observation is that I enjoyed our exterior London scenes being basically rendered in shades of fog. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty delightful given that we're set in London. And it helped to... It helped to make it clear that we don't care what's going on on street level. We don't care what humans are out and about doing. Yeah. Because um, just, you're not going to fucking see them. Who cares? You Good can... Choice. The budget also shows up here. Because there are numerous times where what is, like, what would normally be a sequence of characters proceeding from point A to point B is represented by a still shot with some animation over it and a pan. Which... By the way, if your budget's been cut in half, yeah, cut the corners. I don't mind. This movie's great. I, this, this goes to show how much you can get away with if you make the rest of what you're doing compelling or interesting. I mean, there's no reason we want a long transitional scene no. in this movie. This, is, this one goes at a clip. Yeah. Them chasing Fidget up the pipe is a still. It's got some <laughs> water drop animations over the top of it, but it is a still. And it's a big still. It's a big painted still, and that's why it's a wonderfully detailed pipe work. Looks like ass, but like it's meant to look like ass. <laughs> yes. Uh, my other notes on production are not specifically about visuals, uh, but about voices. Mm. Well, let's talk about voices, shall we? Because I also have run out of stuff about animation. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start by saying Fidget has the voice I wanted on Creeper in the Black Cauldron. You remember how I bitched about his voice being boring? Yeah. This is him! Where was that voice? That's clearly the, the one that goes with that character design. Well, you'd recognize the voice of Fidget. You've heard it twice before. Oh, would I? Want to take a guess? Recently? Recently. Is it Gurgi? Oh, goodness, no. 
Okay. God, I mean, the the last few films we've seen have been so fucking different from one another, I'm very hard-pressed to think about it. All right, then. I'll just spare you your yeah, misery. spare me the trouble. Maleficent's goons. Oh, of course. He sounds exactly like them. And also, the captain of the guard in Robin Hood... Who has the golden arrow? Oh, the, the alligator with the voice from like a tombstone waking up. And that is our old friend Candy Candido. Mm, cool. Yes, this is one of his last roles. Yeah, well, he, good job. Not, not like you know. <laughs> I like how you said Maleficent was recently. That's last season at this point. It is, isn't it? Maleficent's <laughs> second season. I'm sorry, but that's okay. The Crocodile Captain of the Guard was only a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, as soon as you say it, I can hear that. Yep. Yep. Oh, well, guess he wasn't available for Black Cauldron. Man, can you imagine if he'd been Creeper and we'd still had John Hurt and Black Cauldron had just been a better movie? Yeah. Like, I I like that movie, <laughs> but I just still could very much see the better movie I wanted out of it. Anyway. Missed the version that it could have been. Yeah, with John Hurt terrifying children for a generation. <laughs> Did you catch a couple of visual cameos? No. Uh, well, there's a very easy one, which is that one of the, do you remember the music box that was blowing bubbles? Yeah. It's Dumbo. Oh! I completely didn't catch that. You didn't notice that? Uh, I guess the existence of Dumbo is not scored onto your brain from near infancy. Mm, possibly. Uh, but the other one, Radigan has a single lizard in his yes. entourage, and we've seen that design before. Is it a rescuer thing? It's not a rescuer. Though, actually, one of the characters in Rescuers might have looked a lot like him. But he's the lizard chimney sweep. From Alice in Wonderland. You're right, it is! He's the same guy! Well, good on him. I'm glad he was getting work into the 80s. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see him again. Yeah. But this was also one of his last. Mm. <laughs> but don't worry, I understand his niece got a major role in Rescuers Down Under. Oh, yes, it, it runs in the family. Radio. So do I just start going on about voices now? Sure, yeah, hit me. Vincent fucking Price! <laughs> <laughs> The voice talent in this film is great, is Holy it not? Holy crap! Lo- I mean, yeah, you can't go past Vincent Price if you want a melodramatic villain who is just extra as fuck. So Radigan was originally modelled to be a mirror of Basil. He was thin and intellectual and tall and narrow and threatening. And then Vincent Price minced in and was like, well, that's dull. Vincent Price sent in a recording of how he was going to do it. It was It's amazing. As described, it's not like he auditioned. He was like, here is what I'm going to do. And they were like, well, we're redesigning the whole character top down to make this voice work. And that included things like arching upside down. <laughs> I would not have been surprised if they had Vincent Price lined up, but they were just imagining him doing a very different performance. <laughs> and when he sends you that tape, you're like, when I get to tell him no? Yeah, I, I wonder if it's like we got that Hammer Horror guy to come in and do the voice, and they're like, oh, okay, and they start doing like a real Dracula vibe, and they yeah. start draw- they start designing it as if they think they're getting Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's a fantastic design. Mm-hmm. Hiram Flavisham, all right. Uh huh. I know his voice, and in fact, if you know his voice, even if you haven't heard him doing that accent, it's really evident. I'm tempted to say he's Scrooge McDuck just because there was a period where Disney he got did the same do. fucking guy. Yeah! He okay. did do a Scrooge voice, and that's where he got <laughs> he got picked up for this. But that's not the voice I know him as. No. I know him as the voice of Wilbur from Mr. Ed. Oh, really? He is the original wow. black and white Wilbur in Mr. Ed, which for some reason was screened in the kids' block when I was a child. 
was a kid's show, wasn't it? Oh, sure it was, but it was black and white. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a certain era that Australian kids' TV went when they were like, we just don't have, we don't have shit to fill this with. Just, just grab whatever we already have the rights to. Uh, Anything. Huh. The only thing on the other hand, that is how they we got, like, MASH rescreening at 5 p.m. on Which weekdays. just, <laughs> the strangest thing. I got, I got to be angry and happy and laughing and sad all at once, thanks to MASH. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Sometimes you need that emotional outlet as a as a young person. Olivia's voice actress mm-hmm. is a woman named Suzanne Poletchik, about whom I know nothing. No, oh, which I thought I recognized that name, but I guess not. Well, maybe you do. I do not. We also have a genuine legend shows up in this movie. I did not know that that they worked together. When I say Vincent Price and this other guy, it is possibly the I, I think it is literally the first time he's worked for Disney. He has two roles in this movie. Neither of them are speaking roles. How does that happen? The dog and the cat are both voiced. Is this where Frank Welker by Frank fucking Welker? Oh, this is not the only voice he's done for Disney. <laughs> he'll be back. Oh, he'll be back. But I think this might be the. This is the first. Oh, time this I've might seen, be his first. Yes. Yeah, this is the first time I've seen Frank Welker in the IMDb credits for a Disney movie. Nice to see you again, Frank. Mmm. Mm, if you're not too busy over there making most of the cartoons that made me pay money. Oh, he's not. <laughs> and uh, finally, this is a bit of a long shot, but do you remember the mouse you meant to want to fuck? Yes. She's voiced by a basically an adult contemporary alt-rock star of the time. I was going to say, they definitely got a singer for that role, right? That was, mm-hmm. the character has no reason to exist. Yeah. Um, the actress's name is Melissa Manchester, which is one of those things where if I mention the name to the right category of music nerd it's like oh yeah obviously she's got like a dozen hits for the type of music she does she's she she roommated with barry manilow she was one of bet midler's backup singers oh well i've probably heard her then you probably have and the closest i can give anyone out there who's listening who was like well what would i remember her from if you remember the tv show blossom from the 90s Blossom had a <sighs> weird, cool aunt who had a band. Oh. That was her. Okay. Well, I do remember Blossom, but I didn't Blossom. Mm. With, you know, now that you mention it, with regards to uh, Radigan moving so differently and, like, suddenly he has these huge flamboyant movements and he'll lean under his own chest line to look someone <laughs> in the eye like a fucking weirdo. Uh, did you... If I to- if I mentioned how different Basil's animation was, would you know what I was talking about? Yeah, Basil Basil is a very conventional. Admittedly, it's a little bit like rubbery, but like Basil doesn't inflate or deflate. He has a very fixed size. But that's the thing. His movement is all really straight lines. He he moves sharp and quickly and like straight to the thing that he's interested in. He whips around, which gives him this sort of eccentric but uh, intensely directed. Yeah. Feeling to him, which is like a a perfect contrast to a huge flamboyant dude who will, I mean, he, I don't know if he did any actual swaggles, but he has the energy of a swaggle for sure. Yeah, he has big swaggle energy. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, he's, he's all about efficiency and intensity and it's really nice that they wound up with such a contrasting pair. Yeah. And they obviously weren't intending that in the first place. Yeah. I do have one final voice acting note. Oh, yeah? Yes. The voice of Sherlock Holmes in this 
Oh, right, because Human Holmes shows up, doesn't he? Yes. Is Basil Rathbone. Nice! It's a recording from his very first radio play <laughs> as Sherlock Holmes. That's a nice touch. Uh, uh, do, we, do we have anything to say about Basil's voice actor, by the way? Because he's very charming. So, like, yes, his name's Barry Ingham. He was a British stage actor. You know what? You'll be shocked. He turns out in theatre and like, he played a lot of characters in Robin Hood and Sherlock Holmes and Wind in the Willows and uh. just, just just classic British media stuff on the stage. He did a bunch of stuff on TV and a couple of movies. All the movies he did were Robin Hood stories and Sherlock Holmes <laughs> Basic stories. English hero, dude. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, he was just very competent, but also he got to be the foil to Vincent Price, which I think is a testament to how good he is as an actor. <laughs> no, it works really well. Like, he is not at all uncharming. I, I really enjoy this Sherlock take. That's all I got for the voice acting and animation. It's just a nice little touch that the Sherlock in this is the Sherlock we had at home. Yeah, very but, cool. But also the very good Sherlock we had at home. I have something of a grand thesis time. Oh, uh, yeah? And in this case, it's not going to be about the character of the writer of the piece or the fundamental rules of the reality as dictated. This is actually just going to be engaging with the story they give you, which I know it's amazing. I who, who, who would think I do that kind of thing? Uh, but in this case, it's not that it's hard to do a Sherlock Holmes movie. We've seen lots of those, but it can be challenging to do a Sherlock Holmes movie that carries with it the conventional model of a hero who goes through character development and that character development is instrumental to solving the plot. And In that uh, that we kind of know who Sherlock is and we know how he's going to be and what he's going to do, so he basically never changes. Yeah, and like, you can go, oh, it's not technically Sherlock, but like, it's fucking Sherlock. It's, yeah, let's not pretend. And that means that in this movie, they've kind of taken the, like, template of a Sherlock story and then asked, alright, what's the... What's the question of character development? Like, what does this character want versus what does this character need and how do those two things contrast? And in this movie, I think they did a really good job of getting to the core of, like, a movie-sized Sherlock Holmes idea, which is he is good at smart, he is not good at kind. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to distill your basic Sherlock requirements. I like that. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously, ideally, he is also not a fucking asshole because of the second part. Yeah. Uh, or or if he is starting as an asshole, because remember, this guy started off by discharging a gun in a room with two strangers. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, he should be kind of a, well, as you say, not good at kind. Yeah. But, like, there's a, there's a difference between that and just being a fucking prick to everyone around you. Like, yeah. certain other Holmeses. Exactly. In this case, I think I think one of the fascinating things is people forget that Holmes was also very much mindful of being a gentleman. So like he was a dickhead at home, but he was like very polite when he was dealing with strangers. Anyway, the this movie centralizes not in a great way. Like it's not not we don't get a ton of emotional depth out of it, but we do get the central idea that Holmes is smart enough to do this, and Radigan is smart enough to oppose him, and their conflict is this long term battle of smart versus smart. But Radigan discards people radigan abuses friends and exploits people whereas home whereas basil acquiring allies and people he cares about because he absolutely does care about them by the end gets stronger and has ways of surviving and protecting himself that amplify the smartness the hmm. yeah 
That's another way in which they mirror each other. Like, Radigan starts with a lot of allies and discards them until he's, like, literally throws away the last couple of his helpers towards the end of the Yeah. And it's entirely about Basil getting allies for the first time. You can also point to the fact that at the end of the movie, Radigan shreds his clothes to become more bestial, while at the start of the movie, Basil shreds his clothes to become more civilized. That's a fun idea. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying, by the way, this is some deep, insightful, deliberately coded message. It's just people do things subconsciously, and in the case of this movie, you do have that very clear point of symmetry. That's also just something that as a as a director or a storyteller or a designer, you you take advantage of. Like you may not set out with the idea of like, yes, every chance we get, we're going to mirror them, but just that when you're constructing this story and working out how you want to portray the characters, you you see the opportunity to demonstrate a contrast between and you take it even if it's not part of a grand thesis. Yeah. Uh, and that creates this just sort of, you know, intuitive sense for what would be satisfying and interesting. Pretty much. Great job. Gold stars. Do it again without the racism. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, I also, the closest thing I had to a, a meet for this podcast was simply to talk about whether or not this is a good homes. And I think we've covered most of this. Yeah. Um, I, my my classic favorite Sherlock Hound is actually not that good at Holmes because <laughs> he's good at nice. Yeah, like, I don't know if you've watched any of Sherlock Hound, but he is a lovely gentleman. He is a good boy. I, he's a dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things about this movie, this was going to come up in the capitalism section, but effort. Um, was that there were a lot of characters who got cut from this movie. Uh, now, part of the reason they got cut was for budget reasons, but they pointed out that you don't need people to give tips or explain things to Basil. You don't need people to give him clues. You just have him work it out on his own. Yeah. The, the audience is already on board for the fact that this guy can look at things and put together the plot in his head. And it works to this movie's surprising benefit that they cut like seven characters. Oh, that sounds so muddy. Yeah, well, th- this also rips along, and it means that the bulk of the movie gets to be supported by largely Ingram, Ingham and, uh, and Vincent Price, and well, turns out those two people can do a job. And also, worth noting, despite that, they pretty much played fair with the clue bullshit. <laughs> yeah! Like, I... They, don't get me wrong, they fucked us a couple of times, like, the multiplying by the square root of an iso... But uh, you know, the coal dust and, and everything, they mm-hmm. they played pretty fair with. I I admired that. It wasn't like brilliant genius science that would stand up to a forensic expert, I'm sure, but it also wasn't just lying to children because children wouldn't notice. And I appreciate that. Uh-huh. It's really quite good. That's some good times. Uh, I will say the other thing the Sherlock has that makes him a good Sherlock is he's a bit of a drama queen. Yes! Not like Radigan is, obviously, but enough to, you know, go into a fucking sulk when his grand theory comes right up to the point of working and then, ah, he was wrong! I was outwitted! And then he was outwitted. Well, he does like a microcosm of this at first when he's comparing the bullets. Yeah. And then he just goes into this useless funk. Please note he does that three times, and the third time he doesn't collapse. <laughs> that, oh my god, that's character development. That it is. But yeah, so that, I feel, is the other thing that the, your Sherlock has to have to be a good one. Good at smart, bad at kind, kind of a drama queen. <laughs> good at smart, bad at kind, terrible at cope. 
Yeah, yeah. It's just I that's just what I want to see on a genius character, alright? They there is a very real connection between being fucking smarty pants know-it-all all the time and having to admit that you're wrong occasionally, and it's not a good one. Yeah. I enjoyed that they let him have those moments. He's a very good hero with some fucking flaws going on. Which makes it more interesting than a lot of Disney heroes we've seen, especially the dudes. Like, mm. it's not that they're good at everything and, and obnoxious because of it so much as they're just mostly boringly good. Yeah. yeah. However, I think with that, we're on to whatever left. <laughs> yeah, this is a short one. It's not a complicated movie to talk about. It's just a good fucking time. Yeah, this is a really good... Like, please, if there's any message you've gotten from my general negativity towards these movies, this and Robin Hood are probably two of the <laughs> best... Like, no, actually, un- unequivocally, Robin Hood and this are the two best movies I've watched for this podcast. I like Fantasia a lot. I'd happily put that in an honorary third spot. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to put Fantasia on for a good bloody time. This, on the other hand, I laughed, I cried, well, I didn't cry, but I laughed, and it, and it clips along, and Vincent Price is a delight, and yeah, just, it's a really good little movie. I can see why it did well. Alright, so now we're in Whateverland, we're gonna do a bunch of little nitpicks and notes that have no real substance, but we want to remark on them anyway. You go first? Alrighty, my very normal framed portrait of my handsome nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> nice and straight there, Basil, yep, uh-huh. Uh, the accents in this movie are all surprisingly good. <laughs> They're not bad. I like I said, the kid is the most dubious. Mm. Um, but I don't. I've never heard a Scottish six-year-old. Maybe that's what they sound like. They probably swear more. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I I want to see sweary Scottish Olivia now. That would be <laughs> You're not listening to me, fucking dad. <laughs> that's a. As close as I'm gonna come to trying, so uh, don't at me. Uh, so my dad is a toy maker, and this winds up being relevant to the villain's grand scheme, as I act as a surrogate daughter figure who teaches you how to love. Uh, that's the plot of Darkwing Duck's pilot. Ah, uh, I enjoy how when Radigan explains his evil plan to his goons in what is supposedly the most disreputable uh, hive of scum and villainy in in all of London. Uh, they're all still <gasps> horrified when he stubs out his cigarette on the Queen's portrait. <laughs> <laughs> Something very English about that. Bats are monstrous again. Yeah, Fisher has some truly horrifying moments, doesn't he? It's great. He's a scary boy. Uh, on, on the note of scary, I like that they did some proper horrifying toy shit in this. Yeah. Like the doll collapsing face first and the like one eye. eye hanging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was fun. They finally noticed that uh, that Victorian toy shops are horrifying. <laughs> the do you want a crumpet moment? <laughs> Boo! That's not what a crumpet is. So there's layers of semiotics here, okay? Because we're in Australia. And to us, crumpet means very specifically a type of crumpet. Whereas in the United Kingdom, a crumpet refers to a whole range of things as breakfast food, which includes what we here would call an English Muffin. What was depicted in the video was very clearly... It's an American muffin. An American muffin. A.K.A. a cupcake. Yes! So, every part of that do you want a muffin bit is wrong. (laughs) I hate it. Also, a cheese crumpet just sounds horrid. (laughs) Don't like that at all. 
Uh, oh, hey, this one's almost the same as an animation note, but like, do you know a lot about rats and mice? Uh, aside from the scale difference? No. Okay, so here's the thing. Basil is a rat. Oh! <laughs> like, it's, we're, we're playing loose because these are cartoon interpretations of facial features and whatnot, but Basil's longer nose and the particular shape he has with a bit of a hook to it and stuff. Yep. He has a rat's face. <gasps> I think fucking Basil should have been a rat. Is he secretly saying. a rat blending in? Is that the thing between ra- between Basil and Radigan? Is that Radigan also <laughs> wants to be considered a mouse, but he doesn't pass? And so he's deeply infuriated when anyone brings up his species because oh. no one brings it up for Basil? Ooh, there's layers here. Yeah, that would make the queer coding a lot less, uh, a lot more yikesy. Yeah, a lot less fun. Ooh. But uh, I'm definitely bringing that one to bear. I don't yeah. think that that's. Uh, I don't think that's what they meant to do. No, probably not. Uh, one of my notes is just this is the mouse you're meant to want to fuck. That is the mouse you're meant to want to fuck. Wow, that. Mm, I don't necessarily agree with the inclusion of that whole sequence. It is weird. It is weird. I forgive it because it brings me a certain joy with, with all the other mice being like, oh, she's hot, and Basil being like, now if I thought about this plan from all angles. I, I don't trust this heterosexuality thing. I've never had a bit of it. I don't understand. It's a woman. That said, um, it was also a budget spinner. They wanted to try and sell a single. And that's why I figured that character also existed, because they wanted someone to sing. Like, just because they got a singer. Did, did you notice? When Radigan was in his uh, ceremonial I'm the fucking king now garb, that his tail had a sleeve with a little ermine trim on the end. (laughs) (laughs) I had not noticed that until this watch through and that fucking just tickles me pink. How delightfully extra. (laughs) They really got why this character would be appealing. (laughs) Is this our first proper Disney villain death well not our first because the first is famously the evil queen remember get her yeah good point <laughs> she wow, uh but we haven't had one in a good long time a proper fall into oblivion death yeah uh oh try and think of the last one we had there must have been one since snow white but it's hard to recall off the top of my head maybe we'll check back and update this next episode yeah maybe uh boy we're gonna see a few of those from now on uh did you notice at the end, uh, Basil has kept the bell as yes. a souvenir? Yeah. Does that mean he's keeping the cat? I don't know. Are we to understand that the cat survived, or I but, don't know? It's mysterious. But also, he doesn't—he doesn't use the bell to control the cat when you see him use it. He just uses it as like <laughs> a one-liner. Yeah. Weird. I wonder if perhaps he was going to, if perhaps that was going to be the death. Like they're going to get struck by lightning or get mauled by the cat. That the, they were going to have him lose the bell and get the cat, get fed to the cat. Like when he looks in his pocket and is like, oh, "You stole the bell." That's that's what you expect would be the thing, right? Yeah. And then you're like, "No, wait, they're on fucking Big Ben. The cat is not here. The cat has already been dealt with. Why is that a thing?" And it turns yeah. out it's not a thing. Yeah. It's it's just a flex, I guess. Pretty much. <laughs> Which, you know, good at smart, not good at kind. You know what? Also, while we're here, uh, cute reference with having our, our Sherlock fall to his apparent death. Yes. Even if only for a few seconds. While wrestling with 
Moriarty yeah. in the rain. He, he, he famously goes over a waterfall wrestling Moriarty and appears to die, but is too popular to die. Yeah. So we shall see him again later and he will be like, no, I used, a, what is it, an old Indian wrestling trick? Ugh. Yeah. Well, I mean, these stories were not unyikesy, were they? That's true. Um, speaking of the cat, finally a Disney movie where animals run like they fucking mean it. <laughs> we talked about this in The Fox and the Hound. Like, I think overall that's a beautiful film, but there are many scenes of animals running for their life where they go really slowly yeah. <laughs> for the sake of not needing to move off a frame or, or, I don't know, they just wanted to make the animation more interesting or that we could follow the action or, or whatever. But Toby and Felicia, they go like stink. They are running for their for their lives. While I agree with your point on this movie, I would like to say that the idea that no animal has been rendered running well in the past, this is blatant Bagheera erasure. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's not the first time. Definitely not. It's just that there have been the last few films we have noticed that we have had more panto oh, yes. running on uh, what is ostensibly normal animals. Well, I'm out of whatever land. Oh, so am I. Which leaves us with only our final destination, the Great Arbiter. <laughs> the dread skull of creativity. Capitalism. Capitalism. Alright, well, you already know this movie's budget <laughs> got kicked in the teeth. You have kind of given it away, yes. Now, I don't know what its original budget was looking like, though, which is an interesting thing. Mmm. Uh... Because the Black Cauldron exceeded all my expectations for how much money they managed to burn on that. Uh-huh. That's relevant. Uh, and immediately before that, we had only just broken the double digits. Yep. Um, so, even if this movie was half of Black Cauldron's budget, it would still be twice the Rescuer's budget. Yeah! Uh, so, I don't know, let's split the difference and say that's what it cost. Somewhere around 20 Okay, so you're closer to its original budget than its eventual. And then it got cut to roughly the rescuers. It was at 24 million original. Then it got cut in half when a bunch had already been spent. So it's around 14 million. It's kind of hard to nail down exactly how much it would cost to make because sure, some of the budget sure. had been allocated. And this stuff's all liquid. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all about what the studio reports anyway. So we just have to take it on faith. How did it do, you reckon? Uh, this did well. I know mm -hmm. that for a fact. This movie is credited with saving the studio after Black Cauldron nearly fucking killed it. Yep. Uh, but as to the scale of how well, hmm, goodness me. Uh, we we must have broken a hundred million. No. No? Well below that. I'm afraid that this only made about 38.7 million. Is that all? Yep. Wow, that's not that big. No, but it was enough to redouble confidence in the animation department. Yeah, it's certainly, compared to its budget, it's it's surely a success. But... Which prompted people in the executive to decide to pull some money for the next big production. <laughs> Is this the next one that they hadn't started yet, or is this the next one we're going to see come out in, like, a year's time? The next release. Oh. <laughs> right. And uh, it definitely didn't all get blown on famous voice actors. Here's the thing about this movie. This movie did well. This movie did very well at the box office, so much so that it returned to the theatres only six years later. Ah. Which is one of the sources of the two different names. Now, I, I want to say I was talking Lifetime, but... Mm. Uh, uh, understood. Okay. Here's the thing, though. It opened the same weekend as an American Tale. <laughs> Wait, originally or on the re-release? Originally. Originally. Wow. So we had competing milestones. A real like Bugs Life Ants thing going on. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong. 
I don't mean any disrespect to anyone involved, but the numbers of history bear out that American Tail kicked the doors in, and this didn't. This just this just merely did well. And the thing is, you remember when we talked about the Black Cauldron? Mm-hmm. We had some names that weren't animators. We surely did. We heard from Katzenberg, give or take 12 minutes, <laughs> and we heard from Eisner. Mm-hmm. Eisner thought this movie didn't do as well as it should because the name Basil was too English. Well, that was stupid. But, uh, I mean, he might have been right. There was a certain jingoistic American nationalism rearing its head uh, in those days. The original title of the movie and the way it was advertised at first. So, if you were in a country like Australia, you might have gotten the ads made with the original name. Late. Basil of Baker Street. It then got renamed, before release, as The Great Mouse Detective. This retitling of the film was so unpopular with the filmmakers that animator Ed Gombert wrote a satirical inter-office memo, allegedly by studio executive Peter Schneider, which gave preceding Disney films the titles Seven Little Men Help a Girl, (laughs) The Wonderful Elephant Who Could Really Fly, (laughs) The Little Deer Who Grew Up, The Girl with See-Through Shoes, Two Dogs Fall in Love, Puppies Taken Away, and A Boy, A Bear, and a Black Cat. <laughs> I, I enjoy some of these. I like A Little Deer Grows Up as a perfect <laughs> summary of Bambi. That's all that there is in Bambi. Damn, who knew that we could have done the plot in three seconds? <laughs> also, uh, we have said multiple times now that Ollie Johnston was the last of the nine old men. Uh-huh. Uh, turns out that I was wrong. What? Oh, uh, this movie is the one with the last of the nine old men, and I, for one, blame yeah. Wikipedia's lax uh, editorial standards. Uh, it's a guy called Eric Larson, who was the body model for Dawson. Huh. I don't remember that name. Eh, shame on me. Mm. Anyway. I, I've said multiple times that I don't have the categorical nerd knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing research as I'm watching these films. Yeah. Overall, though, this... This movie is really properly good. Yeah, not that I should really invite the comparison to American Tale, I guess, because it's, it's got a much more sort of high it, art feel to it. Categorically but... different films. Yeah. It, if it comes down to it, I'd still rather watch this. Yeah, and, and if you're gonna look if you're gonna say, well, this opened at the same time as American Tale, so let's compare them, like there's so much less interesting lenses there, especially because American Tale, like, I, I would point to American Tale's representation of narratives America uh, is always willing to hear about itself, whereas this is a fun adventure movie about a mystery, and what this movie is trying to do is much less ambitious. But still, uh, yeah, just just an interesting kind of... Uh, it, it's weird, because we're used to Disney being these, like, climate-defining you know, cultural touchstones... And therefore, the whole point of us talking about movies like Fox and the Hound, which even then is a cultural defining thing, uh, is because, like, wow, it's surprising that this important thing is so bad. Whereas in this case, it's <laughs> super good, but it's not important. No, it, and if anything, it feels like it would have been the other way around. Like, American Tale feels like the thing Disney would have been doing. Yeah. And this weird Sherlock Holmes with mice would have been its, its strange competitor that no one remembered. Yeah. Um, but it... It's just not how it is. This is this is the period where the bloodbath of Fox and the Hound is leading to a lot of restructuring and a lot of people who were being ignored being listened to, and in some cases for good and in some cases for bad. Like 
we've churned a whole lot of this studio between our last two films, right? Fox and the Hound, where a shitload of people quit. Yeah. The Black Cauldron, where a shitload of people were fired. Yeah. Like, between those two, you... Ugh. I can't imagine what it would have been like going to work at this studio at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, there is a famous memo about story structure that hasn't dropped yet. And we'll talk about that more in the next season, I think. But it is... It is real... I... We don't normally have a section like this, where we just sit around going, wow, wasn't that movie good? <laughs> yeah, we're not used to it. Uh, I mean, we've discussed that most of these old Disneys are okay with clauses, for mm. the most part. Um, and part of that is that for the first time, like, stories have not really felt tight and well-directed. No. Until the second half of this season, I would say. Like, yeah. Even as much as I love Robin Hood, that's three short stories. They're good. But it's not a tight film. They do lead into one another, but they don't, uh, they're not, like, three obvious parts of a single whole. Yeah. Um, and, and they do meander a bit. Uh, yeah, but this, this had a clear purpose. They went in, then they did the thing, and they got the fuck out again. Uh, and I feel like that kind of, uh, efficiency will define the dizzying highs of the era to come. Now, with all that said, next episode is the season finale for season three of the Disney Animated Cannonball. It's true. How does this era of much change and turmoil uh, come to an end before what everyone knows is the Disney renaissance happens? It is, it is a fun time to talk about Disney, especially because a lot of these movies are forgotten in some way. Like Fox and the Hound. If, I, if you'd asked me before we started this what decade it showed up in, well, I don't know. We talked about it at the time. I thought it was from the 60s. Yeah. It feels so old. Yep. But uh, other ones felt newer than, than they turned out to be. There were, there were a lot of surprises here, even for me. What's up next then, Fox? Well, <sighs> what if Lady and the Tramp was cool? Lady and the Tramp is cool. It is cool. You know what's not cool? Billy Joel being a dog. It should be cool, but it's not. <laughs> but what What if it's actually a retelling of a classic Dickensian story? The kind of one that, say, I, a massive nerd, have read. Would you be mistaking that story for another one of my childhood obsessions that I had? This time based on one of those $3 video store uh, retellings made by just the least talented of animation <laughs> companies? <laughs> I believe it's Oliver and Company, correct? Next up is Oliver and Company. Buckle up. (laughs) Shit's about to get real.